Welcome to the 694th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. If you will all rise, please, and join me in the pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. I'd like to welcome Tom Trescott, our most immediate past president, up to the front, because he has a sesquicentennial moment to share with us all. Thank you, Ray. On this date, 150 years ago, October 8, 1860, the first telegraph line between Los Angeles and San Francisco was opened. But there were other ominous developments going on as well. Um, in New York City, in the Cooper Union, while the Breckenridge, Bell, and Douglas factions were getting together to form an anti-Lincoln fusion ticket, there was a war of words between the Atlanta um, Southern Confederacy and the New York Herald. The Atlanta Southern Confederacy had written of the upcoming election the next month, the South will never permit Abraham Lincoln to be President of the United States. This is the determination of all parties in the South. And let the consequences be what they may. Whether the Potomac will be crimson in human gore and Pennsylvania Avenue is paved 10 fathoms in depth with mangled bodies, or whether the last vestiges of liberty is swept from the face of the American continent, the South, the loyal South, the Constitutional South will never submit to such humiliation degradation as the inauguration of Abraham Lincoln. Now, the New York Herald replied on this date 150 years ago, and by the way, it was an anti-Lincoln uh, paper, the New York Herald. This fellow, referring to the editorial writer in, in Atlanta, is scared before he is hurt. Lincoln is not yet elected, and if he would ever be elected, those very fire eaters of the Georgia school who are always blowing and threatening and never doing anything but mischief to their own friends will be responsible for the results. Had they stood their ground, instead of running away from the Charleston Convention, there would have been no occasion of any alarm concerning Lincoln's election. Being assured, however, that the Southern people will take care of the pro-slavery disunionists in November, the conservative people in the North will only have to look after the non-slavery people, non-slavery unionists, their own non-slavery disunionists, and all will be well. Alas, as we all know, that was not the case. Thank you. Thank you. Just a reminder that uh, we have a raffle at the front table for battlefield preservation. And then also, Dr. Hess has some books of his for sale as well. So um, I welcome you all to spend some money. Have a, nice uh, have a nice dinner, and I will be back at dessert. summer meeting. So if you have not renewed, please see me. Larry Gibbs, I'd like to ask you up here. Uh, I have some uh, very sad news to impart to you. Many of you knew uh, David Hines, and uh, unfortunately, uh, on August 18th, he passed away. Uh, Dave had a heart attack and died at his home in Rolla, Missouri. Uh, 
and uh, he has uh, been here a couple of times to speak. He always had uh, very original thinking, uh, very good research uh, in his speeches, and he's helped us out several times before. I remember um, when I was the tour chairman of the Trans-Mississippi Tour in about seven years ago, uh, Dave stepped in and helped us out. And probably without Dave's help, we wouldn't have had a tour that year. Uh, then uh, on 9-11, the guest speaker was supposed to be Gary Gallagher, but he couldn't make it because of the air travel. And uh, we called Dave up, and he drove all the way from Rolla, Missouri to, to make a presentation to us on the spur of the moment. And uh, so we will miss him. Now, if you, would, uh, if you knew Dave and Mary, his wife, and you'd like to send a card, uh, Mary's address is Mary Hines, H-I-N-Z-E, 10950 Hubbard Court, H-U-B-B-A-R-D. That's in Rolla, Missouri, R-O-L-L-A. -E uh, the zip is 65401. Thank you. Tom Trescott. Thank you. Yes, it's me again. I'd just like to remind everyone that tonight's speaker, Mr. Hass, will be at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop tomorrow at noon to sign copies of his new book, Into the Crater, The Mine Attack at Petersburg. And also appearing with uh, Mr. Hass will be Chris Hartley, signing copies of his new book, Stoneman's Raid, 1865. There are flyers on this event on, all, on the tables there, so please uh, um, pick it up and read about it. And if you can't make it in person tomorrow, you can watch uh, online at uh, virtualbooksigning.net and hopefully order a copy or two or a dozen or so. Thank you very much. Michael Weeks. Hello, everybody. Um, a couple months ago, uh, the, the uh, last meeting of our last season, you might remember Tom mentioning that uh, somebody had been doing some work with Camp Douglas. And I just wanted to give you guys a little briefing on what's been going on. Um, oh, pardon me. Is that better? Okay. Camp Douglas. Uh, over the last few months, uh, I, I can't say there's been a lot of movement, but I can say there's been a lot of action. Um, the group that Tom mentioned a couple meetings ago that had been doing some work is now a nonprofit. It's the Camp Douglas Restoration Foundation. Uh, you can find the website at campdouglas.org. <coughs> Pardon me. Uh, and you can also uh, sign up there for the newsletter. You can join, donate. They are collecting funds. Uh, there's been a lot of progress over the summer. The two uh, aldermen that, that uh, the old camp splits, uh, second ward and fourth ward, Tony Preckwinkle has been very supportive. Bob Fioretti is the other one. He has also been very supportive, but he's kind of occupied right now. You might have heard his name tossed around in the, the new mayoral race. Uh, learning from past mistakes, we have been talking with many of the local groups, including the Bronzeville Tourism Council, the, uh, uh, some of the local chambers of commerce. They are all very supportive of what's going on. Uh, that, always, that hasn't always been in the case in the past. Um, Loyola University just recently pushed some dollars through uh, if we can find a spot to do an archaeological dig. And we have some potential uh, sites for that. 
the long shot is Draper and Kramer, who owns a, a big piece of land up there. Uh, they have development plans for it through 2031 that they just got approved by the city, but uh, to our surprise, they're still talking to us. Uh, also, there are a couple public schools in the area that are tossing around getting involved and actually having the kids volunteer with Loyola to do some of the digging. Um, I feel like I'm leaving something out. There's been a lot going on. Uh, we're talking to a lot of people. Chicago History Museum is backing it. Uh, the DuSable Museum is backing it. Um, we had uh, a radio spot on Rick Kogan's show on WGN a few weeks ago that we got a very nice response on. So when you get home tonight, if you get a chance, uh, check out CampDouglas.org, and you can read more about the foundation. I suspect in the next two, three months, uh, I'll have a, a little bit more for you. So check it out. Thank you. Bob Stoller is going to talk about the 2011 tour. As I've said uh, previous months, since we have no imagination, we're going back to the same area again. We're going to cross the James River, and we're going to tour Petersburg, which is uh, we should hear much more about tonight, and uh, the the uh, National Battlefield Park and uh, end up at Appomattox as well. And uh, Ed, Ed Bars will uh, be the lead guide and Will Green will be the second. The dates of the tour are April the 27th through May 1st. It'll be limited to two buses. And yes, we will have prices for you within the next uh, couple of weeks. Thank you. I want to mention some upcoming uh, Civil War events involving our members. On uh, October 28th, uh, the South Suburban Roundtable, Mike Weeks will be uh, speaking on Finding Hollywood Ground, America's Civil War Histor Historic Sites Today. Um, November 6th at the McHenry County Civil War Roundtable uh, Annual Symposium, Bruce Allardyce will be talking on Civil War Baseball. And. October 15th at the Salt Creek Roundtable, John Kochelko will be speaking on whatever became of the union. So I want to uh, remind everyone again about the raffle before we take our uh, break, and then also to turn your cell phones off um, after you get back from break, okay? So we'll see you in 10 minutes, okay? I forgot to mention, I forgot to mention that Paula Walker, our member, is going to be speaking to the Kankakee Roundtable on November 3rd on Governor K. Warren and the Battle of Five Forks. And Paula, tell us how to pronounce his first name. Is it Governor? That's what Ron says. I always said Governor, but Ron says Governor. Okay, so Governor or Governor. Rob, we're ready for the raffle. Don't forget, in addition to the raffle, we have uh, the note cards and the Battlefield bookshelf. And the speaker is selling some books on the table as well, so please don't forget that. Uh, let's go. First winning number, 523859.
Larry, I've made many mistakes. <laughs> Five two four zero three one. You 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 don't win if you don't play. Michael Weeks, one of the new members on the Battlefield Preservation Committee, made a donation of his speaker's fee for one of his presentations and donated $150 tonight. I think he deserves a round of applause for that. And if you don't have his very excellent first book, keep your eyes out for his very excellent second book, which has been delayed. We all know what that feels like. 523-906. You can still buy some of the books on the back table after the meeting. So far tonight, we raised $280 for battlefield preservation. No, you can donate it back. <laughs> That's what I'll be doing. You don't, you don't have any big books to read. Draw one more, Mark. Oh, oh, I get to pick. You don't have any big books to read. Oh, I can, oh, can I take the small one? Yeah. <laughs> Takes a big man to take the small prize. <laughs> Five, two, four, one hundred. All right. <laughs> Thank you very much. I was uh, reminded to announce that tonight, or today, is the 139th anniversary of the Great Chicago Fire. Unbelievable. In Donna Tui's absence, I will be um, announcing our guest. We have one guest this evening. Well, actually, one. John Phillips, thank you very much for. I know. Mrs. Hess is also a guest. And. Her name is Pratiba. Did I get it right? Terrific. I also want to uh, announce that we have a national member here all the way from Massachusetts, and that is John Hussey. And Bob Stoller, he's going to go on your tour next year. I am happy to introduce Dr. Earl Hess. Actually, Bob Stoller is the one who asked me to invite Dr. Hess as a precursor to our spring battlefield tour. Dr. Hess is a native of Missouri and received his BA and MA degrees at Southeast Missouri State University, PhD locally from Purdue, 
And since 1989, he has been a um, professor at Lincoln Memorial University in Harrogate, Tennessee. And he is going to speak uh, to us this evening on the soldier's life at Petersburg. Thank you, Ray, for that, that nice introduction. I want to thank everybody for the, for the warm and friendly welcome you've given my wife and me tonight. I appreciate it very much. Soldier life in the trenches at Petersburg. Let me start out with a quote. Confederate soldier W.A. Day, 49th North Carolina, who wrote home, the trenches were almost knee deep in mud and it was still raining. Our clothes were covered with mud and soaked with rain no place to sleep, nothing much to eat, 64-pound mortar shells bursting all around. In a way, WA Day kind of set the pace <clears throat> for what I'm going to talk about tonight. The subject tonight is, what was it like to be in the trenches at Petersburg during this long 11-month campaign of the Civil War? Let me uh, start by giving you a brief overview of the Petersburg campaign so that you become uh, somewhat familiar with uh, kind of the basics of it. And then a, a little, bit, little bit of slide showing uh, to give you some indication of what the trenches looked like. Petersburg was the longest, the most complex, and arguably the most important campaign of the Civil War. Started on June 15, 1864, ended April 3, 1865, 292 days, during which about 100,000 troops in blue and gray lived in fought from, died in this amazing system of, uh, of field fortifications outside Petersburg and Richmond. These fortified lines stretch north of the James River. They stretch south of the Appomattox River. They cross the Bermuda Hundred Camp, uh, Peninsula that separated the James from the Appomattox. If one counts the linear feet of all parapets near Petersburg and Richmond, both Union and Confederate, that were involved in the Petersburg campaign, the total comes to 127.4 miles of earthworks. That's a pretty astonishing uh, statistic, I think. Probably 35 miles of that amount lay south of the Appomattox River, where a total of 41 forts studded the Union earthworks alone, not counting Confederate redoubts south of, south of that river. Well, with 100,000 soldiers living in the, in, in, the, in the trenches, not surprising that the Petersburg campaign had a huge impact on the ecology of the area. This is, an, I think, an interesting aspect of Civil War studies that hasn't gotten enough, enough attention yet. Uh, estimates are that before the campaign started, about half the area that the campaign took place on was covered by trees. By the time the campaign ended in April 1865, only 22% of the area still had trees. Uh, that means that the Petersburg campaign resulted in the deforestation of 4,400 acres of Virginia countryside in 11 months. What happened to the trees? They were cut down to clear fields of fire for artillery pieces and infantry uh, troops, to provide timber for revetting parapets, for making magazines and bomb proofs, for making wooden obstructions in front of the fortifications, and of course to provide firewood for the cold soldiers who needed to have, have heat and have uh, hot food. What set the earthworks at Petersburg apart from other field fortifications in the Civil War? Not just the amount of them, the, the sheer length, but also the deep trenches. They tended to be deeper. The parapets tended to be thicker, especially the extensive obstructions in front of the fortifications designed to trip up an attacker, which added to the depth of the fortified position. 
anything, everything from sharpened stakes to chevaux de free to telegraph wire obstructions, and also to the biggest belt of torpedoes or landmines uh, ever deployed in the Civil War. A word or two about that torpedo belt, 2,266 yards of the Confederate earthworks north of the James River was fronted by a thick belt of, of landmines consisting of uh, artillery shells with tin covers over them to protect them from weather. Anybody stepping on the tin cover, of course, would detonate the mine. I find it interesting that the Confederates placed red flags near them so that to protect their own guys who had to go through that belt of torpedoes to go to the picket line on a regular basis and they didn't want, of course, to step on it. Well, our popular perception of Petersburg, to take a larger view, is that the armies were mired in something like trench warfare for 11 months that, that foreshadowed the Western Front in World War I by 50 years. I like to offer an alternative way of thinking about that, however. I look on Petersburg as just one phase of a highly mobile offensive in which Ulysses Grant started from the wilderness in early May 1864 and ended at Appomattox, where you're going to go visit next, next spring, by, um, by April 1865, a distance of 160 miles from the wilderness to Appomattox. Uh, field fortifications played an immensely important role in that whole campaign from start to finish. Petersburg more intensely than the Overland campaign before it, far more intensely than the Appomattox campaign that came after, but nevertheless, even this kind of a matter of perspective, if you're mired in the trenches for 11 months, you may, see, may seem to you like the, the Petersburg campaign is the end of something. In reality, it's just one extended phase of a very long campaign that took a year for Grant to reduce the Confederacy's best army. Estimated Union casualties at Petersburg from, for 11 months, 42,000 men. Estimated Confederate casualties, 28,000 men. And now, thanks to Larry Hewitt, who provided the equipment here, let me run through this uh, slideshow for you. Uh, and uh, this is kind of an experiment for me also to see if it works. There we go. The need to get water, digging uh, soldiers' wells at Petersburg uh, by Alfred Wood. A nice illustration showing what you had to do to find proper water. I'm going to be talking about water and other things in a few minutes. Good photograph of a Confederate picket post. You may know that there are, of course, some Union soldiers standing there. But the photographer, according to William Frasinito's good photographic detective work, detective work uh, was taking a photograph of, of a Confederate, fortified Confederate picket post between the lines in no man's land and having some Union soldiers to stand there for human dimension. This is after the campaign was over, obviously. You can see these are gabions, uh, wicker baskets with both ends open and filled with dirt, and fascines on the right and left sides. Those are bundles of sticks tied together. Nice view of Union earthworks. The, the, the thing you see in the foreground is a covered way, a roadway, a sunken roadway designed to give access to and from the fortified lines. Because, of course, artillery shells and snipers' bullets are going to fall right behind the fortifications. You have to have some degree of cover if you want to go sometimes as much as a, as a mile behind the lines and back up to again. It's called a covered way not because it has a cover on top of it, because by digging two or three feet uh, a, a sunken roadway two or three feet deep, piling the dirt on both sides of it, you can provide lateral cover uh, from the sides. 
a photograph of a Confederate earthwork at Petersburg that I don't think was ever published before. But you see the posts, and those are, those are supporting a revetment. Well, the, the post and, uh, and plank revetment, uh, that's the uh, revetting wall that holds up the interior slope of the parapet. You can see the post sticking up there. And there's a firing step just below it. And then the trench, the, the deepest part of the trench right behind the firing step. Someone standing there for the photographer to have uh, human death to the photograph. All these photographs, of course, taken right after the end of the campaign in the early summer of 65. <coughs> Union artillery position on the 18th Corps sector. Uh, the covering in front of the, uh, the piece is called a mantlet. It's a covering to uh, cover in the open embrasure so that sniper's bullets won't come through so easily and, and, and hit the uh, gun crew. Usually the most effective mantlets were made out of rope, ironically enough. Very thick rope in two or three layers. It had a kind of uh, resiliency because when sniper's bullets hit it, it kind of wiggled a little bit instead of being rigid. Fort Sedgwick, probably the most famous fort on the Union side of the Petersburg Lines. One of the biggest uh, forts on the, on the Union side called uh, Fort Hell. Some, some argument as to why it was called that. Uh, one argument is that Union General William Farrar Smith, kind of a somewhat pompous, self-important person, rode in there and saw that it was called, named after somebody else, and he said, oh hell, and rode away. Whether that's a facetious story, I don't know. Probably a better story is that it was a dangerous place to be in and not a good place to, uh, to enjoy yourself. These are gabions. They're forming traverses. Uh, traverses are protective devices that go at a right angle behind the main parapet to protect yourself from enfilade fire from the right and left. There is a bit of board there that probably was used as a mantlet for an artillery position. On the right is the, is the wall of the main bomb-proof headquarters within Fort Sedgwick. Union soldiers are standing on the parapet to add human dimension again. This is uh, the, right, the far right end of Fort Sedgwick and a connecting infantry line between it and the next work in the Union uh, line of fortification, battery number 21, which is in the distance there, a short distance. I don't know how well you can see it from here, but there's the trench, there's the fire step, there's the parapet on the left, there's the ditch in front of the parapet on the left. There's even a corduroy road running the length of the trench because, of course, trenches were basically ditches whenever it rained. So there's a big problem with mud and water standing in there. And the troops build this corduroy walkway along the length of the trench. There's an artillery uh, embrasure in the foreground right there with a, a wooden mantlet that's still attached to it. The uh, emplacement had a wooden platform, which has mostly been taken up already. One of the interesting things about it, as soon as the campaign is over, what happens? Local civilians come to the earthworks and begin stripping the wood out of it to use. So you can see in the evidence of that right here, that that platform is mostly gone already by the time the photographer uh, took this photo. They left the wooden mantlet for some reason. I don't know why, but they probably get it in a day or two. Uh, the Union had Fort Hell, the Confederates had Fort Damnation. <laughs> Opposite Fort Hell, on the other side of, the, of no man's land, the Confederates called it Fort Mahone, named after a famous division commander in the Confederate Army. Uh, also a dangerous place to be. After its fall, Union troops are standing on the traverses of photographers there to snap the picture. Uh, 
you can get a, get a sense from this and everything else of how much wood is necessary in earthen fortifications. You have, you have an earthen wall, but you, the earthen wall doesn't do as good a job of protecting unless it's vertical or as close as vertical as possible. If you let it naturally go out like that, then it's going to be far less effective as a protection. Inside Fort Sedgwick, again, Union bomb proofs are living quarters. And you can see that they are dug into the side of a hill. There are doorways here. There are wooden sides so that, you know, they can have access to, to their things. Uh, there is a homemade chimney right there. You can see in the foreground with a barrel on top of it. The chimney is made of sticks, you know, in a crib fashion with some clay daubing. Inventive. I'll talk about the shelters in a, in a couple of minutes. A better view close-up view of an entrance to a, a, a nicely made bomb proof on the Union side. It even has a nicely made wooden door on the side that, was, that has been torn off the hinges. It has a wooden latch and I think this is a shot that it even has a latch string on the on the wooden handle. You know what a latch string is, right? From the old frontier cabins. Uh, instead of a lock, you just uh, tied a tight, drilled a hole through the door and had the latch on the inside and then you tied a leather thong or a string from the latch and the other end of the string could go through the hole in the door so that if someone nice to you and friendly wanted to come in, they could pull it and get in. And if you didn't want anybody to come in, you pull the, the latch string in so nobody could have access to it. The same, they did the same thing here. Mining and countermining on the, on the Petersburg lines. Uh, of course, the most famous example of mining is the Crater Battle of July 30th, 1864. The Confederates were scared out of their wits by the Crater Battle. They did an extensive job of digging countermines under, under the earth. A, a countermine is an underground tunnel that's designed to intercept an offensive mine by the enemy. The Confederates dig, dug countermines at eight locations along the Petersburg lines. Some of them were very, very extensive. One of them was discovered in the 1920s by land developers at Petersburg. This is a, near the Jerusalem Plank Road. It's the, the biggest complex of Confederate countermining at Petersburg. They opened up a big section of that countermine, redug the, the trenches, I'm sorry, redug the tunnels, and opened it up for tourists in the 1920s. This is a photograph taken in the 1920s of what one section of that Confederate countermine looked like in, in that time period. Uh, you can see that there is electric lighting in it. That obviously is not. <laughs> is not authentic. That was installed by the developers. They replaced the wood. They also probably redug re the, the surface to make it a little more smooth and everything like that. I've seen some photographs of what the mines, the countermines looked like when it was initially opened up and they were a mess. A lot of half-rotten wood laying around and everything like this is nicely cleaned up for the tourists. It's a wonderful photograph. Also another photograph of Fort Sedgwick. Uh, this photograph is widely reproduced for many, many years and often used, I think, by historians to demonstrate kind of like the hell of warfare in the Civil War. I think that it is one of the covered ways leading into Fort Sedgwick. Look how deep it is and look at all the tree roots that have been exposed by the digging. Also look at all the water. You have to deal with that somehow. You, you want to use the covered way for protection, but you have to kind of slog through a couple of feet of water to, to do it. At the far end, you can see some sort of wooden structure, and I think that might be the entrance to, probably the entrance to a bomb proof. Uh, a sad photograph, 
uh, taken soon after the April 2nd attacks at Petersburg, a dead Confederate soldier, he is laying, the reason why I included it, he, he is laying in a covered way that linked Fort Mahone with the main Confederate line. Fort Mahone actually was about 200 yards in front of the main Confederate line of fortifications, linked by a, a pretty deep and wide covered way. I included the photograph so that you get a, another good illustration of what a covered way could look like, how muddy it is, how saturated with water it is, uh, how much this one has been. You can see all the feet marks in, in, the, in the mud. Well, that's it. Thank you for, for your attention to that. Um, okay, life in the trenches. Here's a topic, sanitation and health. According to the, the inspector of Confederate General Johnson Haygood's brigade, the South Carolina troops of, of Haygood's brigade were already beginning to show the signs of health problems due to their stay in the trenches as early as August 1864. The inspector wrote, vermin abounded and uh, diseases of various kinds showed themselves. The digestive organs became impaired by the rations that were issued and the manner in which they were prepared. Diarrhea and dysentery were universal. The legs and the feet of the men swelled because of staying in these deep trenches until they could not wear their shoes any longer. And the filth of their persons from the scarcity of water was almost unbearable. And I apologize for talking of subjects like this after this beautiful dinner tonight, but this is history. Thomas Jackson Strayhorn of the 27th North Carolina wrote home that he was repelled by the thought of staying in what he called those dirty ditches. I hope we will not have to go into those trenches anymore, he wrote home. They are so dirty and hot you can get no air at all scarcely. L.S. Wright of the 56th North Carolina went so far as to refer to the fortifications as if they were some sort of prison. My mind is so confused, he wrote home. Because of exhaustion and stress, he meant, I am always in a dread to come out of the breastworks for fear of being killed. Well, uh, talking about the ecological impact, we mentioned that before, the cutting of trees and underbrush created a landscape that was bare and dusty. Some men described enormous clouds of dust, fine and sticky as they called it, a mixture of sand and clay that arose every time somebody walked past. Uh, the chaplain of the 102nd Pennsylvania wrote, you see nothing but dust at Petersburg. You smell dust, you eat dust, you drink dust, your clothes, your blanket, your food, your drink are all permeated with dust. You can imagine then what happened when a heavy rainstorm fell turned the dust into soupy mud, as I mentioned a while ago. The rain tended to flood the trenches and turn them into uh, rivers, forcing occupants to either crouch in them and take the punishment or get out and risk being shot at. The presence of millions of flies also was a major problem that soldiers talked about at Petersburg. The flies fed on the manure left by horses and beef cattle, and they swarmed around bothering the soldiers. They seem to fairly spring out of the ground when you move, commented one Union soldier. They fan your face and hands so that it is impossible to keep still an instant. And of course, another Federal uh, also wrote about the flies. We have to keep constantly in motion as their capacity is so great that they can scarcely be driven away from one. They drive the poor horses and mules perfectly crazy, he wrote. Now another problem especially in the dry weather at Petersburg, the men became caked with dust 
Many of them, especially on the Confederate side, developed an itching that resulted from dirt and insects combined on the skin. The problem was worse on the CS side, mainly because of a severe shortage of soap in Lee's army. In fact, Lee wrote to President Jefferson Davis in, I think it was August 1864, the great want of cleanliness is now producing sickness among the men in the trenches uh, and must affect their self-respect and their morale. Uh, it was not easy for, for troops on station in the trenches to attend to an important function, the call of nature. This may, how many people talk about this? Well, soldiers talked about it. If you think about it, if you're on duty in the trenches for a long period of time, many soldiers on both sides feared leaving the trenches when they were on duty in order to relieve themselves in the latrines that were located right behind the trench lines. Uh, oftentimes they preferred to do that necessary duty inside the works. As a result, the trenches oftentimes became cesspools, littered with what the members of the Civil War generation tended to call a nuisance, which is a nice word for it, I think. <clears throat> when they relieved themselves just behind the, uh, the trenches in the same spot over the course of time, it created a field of nuisances. At some points in the Union line, the ground behind the works was so littered with human waste that only a few paths had been left through that waste for men to walk along. And sometimes Confederate sharpshooters discovered this and lay in wait, watching those paths to find a victim. Officers, of course, at times ordered latrines to be dug just behind the, the lines and fortified them with parapets to protect the soldiers who used them. They also tended sometimes to let the men dirty the trenches as long as possible until this, the smell and the, the mess became so much that orders would go out to clean them up. And after a few weeks, of course, they would be dirtied again. Well, I promised a word or two about shelter, living quarters, bomb proofs, as Civil War soldiers call them, or bunkers in modern 20th century terminology. Uh, the 118th Pennsylvania was fairly typical, perhaps, of Union soldiers at Petersburg. Uh, the, the Federals at Petersburg tended to build big bomb-proofs to house, house quite a few people in each one. The Confederates tended to rely on just digging small individual shelters for themselves. The 118th Pennsylvania made bomb-proofs 14 feet by uh, 16 feet, large enough, they thought, for about a dozen men. They dug down several feet into the earth, then covered the roof with logs, and piled about two, two feet of dirt on top of it and leaves on top of that, made a fairly snug and a fairly safe enclosure. Life in these large bomb proofs, generally safe, as I mentioned, except if a mortar round hit the very top of it and caved in the roof. That, of course, created an awful lot of discomfort and danger. And, of course, if it rained, these underground shelters became very damp and very muddy. The water tended to seep through the dirt cover of the bomb proofs, not just while it was raining, but for several days after it stopped raining, making everything muddy and wet and uncomfortable inside. Moreover, a lot of these bomb proofs were infested with rats. These rats dug their own holes into the side of the shelter. Confederate Private I.G. Bradwell of the 31st Georgia wrote after the war, we were greatly annoyed at night by rats running over us. These pests were almost as large as squirrels and were always ready to pounce down on our meager rations of any chance offered. Well, speaking of rations, food supplies, at Petersburg they tended to vary from time to time. There was a, a tendency for feasts to be followed by famine. That applies to both sides to a greater or lesser degree, but Confederates, of course, were far worse off than the Federals were. Among the members of Lee's army, men were sometimes reduced to cooking 
and eating plants like lamb's quarter, pepper grass, poke leaves, and as one Confederate soldier put it, a good many sorts of things that I never thought a cow would eat. At, one, as at least one Confederate soldier reported seeing a comrade catch and eat a rat. You know, the story about the Confederates eating rats at Vicksburg, there's at least one source that says it happened at Petersburg too. There's a North Carolina soldier in Lee's army called Virgil Caven, who wrote a series of letters home to his relatives begging them to send him some food in a care package. Send me all you can, he wrote home. I can't stay here this away. I have to work on the breastworks, and I can hardly do it for the want of something to eat. The sad thing is that if Caven had been sent that care package, he would have been lucky to receive it, because there was at the railroad depot in Petersburg what one commentator called a regularly organized band of thugs and pickpockets infesting the railroad depot at Petersburg. These were soldiers and maybe even civilians, I, they were never identified, but the gang really spent quite a bit of time stealing packages from home after they were unloaded from the railroad cars and before they could be delivered to the, uh, the regiments on the, on the front line. The situation got so bad that many unit commanders would assign some of their armed men to escort the packages from the railroad depot out to the regimental camps. Food shortages were more than just a discomfort. They seem to have been the main factor in the rise of desertion in Lee's army in the winter of 64-65. Many of those deserters skipped away while they were on duty on the picket line, especially at night. That's the easiest way to desert, of course. Uh, a few of them went to the Union Army, but actually most of them went to the rear. They deserted to the rear so they could go home. They really weren't giving up on the cause in the sense that they were capitulating to the Union. They were just tired of what was taking place at Petersburg and wanted to go back home. Lee reported losing 5,928 deserters between January 10th and March 28th, 1865. That's the equivalent of a full division, of course, of Confederate troops. As a Confederate soldier from the 22nd North Carolina, W.E. Leake, who provided something of a case study in how morale could be tested among Lee's men by the living conditions in the earthworks at Petersburg, uh, W.E. Leake suffered terribly from hunger and anxiety he worried about what's happening to his family back in South Carolina, even as Sherman's men are marching through that in early 1865. Riding home, he said, we have mud in abundance. It is just like living in a hog pen. He said he lived on a tin cup full of cornmeal and some beef, bone and all, as he put it, for his daily ration for day after day after day. Leake reported to his, his friends at home and his family that he would sit for endless hours in picket pits all night long doing duty, uh, able to do nothing but chain smoke tobacco to take his mind off his hunger. And he said that he sometimes became so famished that he literally felt sick to his stomach uh, from, from, from the lack of food and also from all the smoking. Now, let's shift our attention a little bit Soldier life in the trenches not only involves uh, sleeping and shelters, uh, eating and etc. it involves fighting. Uh, the earthworks at Petersburg were not only a home for the soldiers, they were a fighting platform. The danger of getting hit by a sniper's bullet or round of enemy artillery fire was always present. Captain George Bowen of the 12th New Jersey in the 2nd Corps said in his diary, there is not a day passes when at least one member of our number is not struck with a mini ball. He went on to say, with a good deal of wry commentary, this picking us off one at a time gets on one's nerves. 
A New Jersey artilleryman wrote that any soldier who exposed himself carelessly was certain to become what he termed a gone goose. And statistics give us a, a good indication of the amount of sharpshooting that took place on a continuing basis along the Petersburg line. Uh, I, I cite the report of Confederate Division Commander General Bushrod Johnson, who on a daily basis sent out 1,100 men from his division to the picket line every day where they fired 20,000 rounds, amounting to an average of 18 rounds per man per tour of picket duty. But Johnson reported to his superiors that this was nothing compared to what the Federals were doing to his division. He said that Federal deserters told him the Union Army at Petersburg was far more generous than that, that the Federals gave 100 rounds of ammunition to every man they sent out to the picket line and expected him to fire it all away during their tour of duty. Well, with the lines only 125 yards apart at one point, that's where the, the, the Battle of the Crater took place, and as much as two miles apart on other parts of the line, soldiers had to endure an awful lot of false alarms where nervous pickets would think something was up on the enemy line and let go a few rounds in the middle of the night and alarming everybody. Sometimes the Federals had fireballs deployed along the line. They could light them at night and throw them into no man's land to light up the area in, in order to try to hinder any Confederate attack. With a situation like this, it's not surprising that trench raiding took place at Petersburg, somewhat similar to what you saw on the Western Front in World War I. The Confederates, I give them credit, seem to have done more trench raiding than the Federals at Petersburg, and they probably did it better, too. As an example, the Sharpshooter Battalion of McGowan's South Carolina Brigade conducted many trench raids on the Union position. They did it to gather prisoners and gather intelligence. Uh, they did it to get supplies to steal them from the Federals if they couldn't be supplied by their own commissaries and, and quartermasters. Uh, the, the, the sharpshooters of McGowan's command rushed the Federal picket line usually before dawn. They sometimes coordinated their movements with uh, whistles and bird calls. They never tried to penetrate the main Union line. That was too tough to do, but they, they could attack and take sections of the picket line, which was vulnerable. Now, of course, you all know about truces in the Civil War. That's a common thing happened all of the time along Peters, the Petersburg lines. This was a, a desirable thing from the standpoint of the soldiers because it gave them an opportunity to rest from the stress of the, of the trenches, gave them an opportunity to see what the enemy was like and to humanize the enemy and realize that he was in a, a, a difficult position just like you were. It could happen as easily as someone sticking a newspaper on a stick and raising it slowly above the parapet as a signal to the other side that let's talk, let's trade. And it happened all the time. Happened on the lower levels, happened on the picket line, mostly. Officers, higher ranking officers didn't like it. It was against standing orders. They tried to squash it every time they could, but they couldn't stamp it out. Anyone who violated the truce was dealt with summarily by their own comrades because it was a matter of trust and it was a matter of everyone's safety that everybody obey the rules. There's a, as a case of during one of these truces, a Confederate soldier for some reason fired off his gun. That made everybody scamper for their holes. The Confederates yelled out to the Federals, don't shoot, you'll see how we'll fix him. They disarmed that guy and they forced him to stand up and carry a rail for a, a, quite a while outside his own works to demonstrate to the, to the Federals that look, we're disciplining him, we're teaching him the rules so you don't have to worry about it. 
Now, as I said, officers generally frowned on these truces. Their reason was it gives the enemy an opportunity to, to gain intelligence of our position, the condition of our works, etc., like that. Uh, but it happened all the time anyway. My favorite story about this sort of thing, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell it again, I did last night also, uh, there was a tree standing in no man's land on one section of the, of the Petersburg lines. I, would, I was still there, who knows? Like it was between the picket lines and nobody had gotten to it yet. The federal pickets one night sneaked out there with axes and started to chop it down, hoping to do so before the Confederates found out what was going on. But the Confederates found out what was going on. They came out and stopped them and there was a tense confrontation. The confrontation could have resulted in shooting, but instead they all agreed to share the tree. And they did it in a nice way. Go ahead and finish cutting it down, whichever way it falls. If it falls toward the Confederates, then the Confederates can have the top half of it, and the Federals can have the bottom half of it. I, I love that story, because it's, it's a nice illustration of how the soldiers themselves had the ability to, to, to cooperate with each other when given the chance. Now, this spirit of trucing and cooperation ended at a racial divide. You probably know that there was a division of black troops in the Army of the Potomac, and I guess more than a division in the Army of the James. The rule of thumb was, and it was a hard rule of thumb, that wherever those black troops were stationed on the Petersburg lines, the Confederates opposite them never engaged in any truces. And it was always said that the sniping and artillery fire was heavier on those parts of the line than any place else. There was no giving on the Confederates' part in that sense. Well, here's a topic that maybe you haven't thought of, aerial warfare at Petersburg. The stress, of, yes, the stress of living in the earthworks at Petersburg produced a willingness to believe that there might be a quick way to end the campaign and the war. That paved the way for an entrepreneur named Dr. Roderick O. Davidson, a former Confederate soldier who now was a government bureaucrat in Richmond, to push an invention of his, a flying machine, that he called the Artis Avis, or the Bird of Art. Davidson claimed that he had built a prototype in Richmond, but he couldn't get the Confederate government to fund the construction of his machine. He then toured the Confederate trenches in the winter of 64-65 to drum up donations from the common soldiers. He spoke to several brigades about his plan, and it's interesting to look at the primary documents to see these Confederate soldiers talking about his, 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 uh, his sales pitch. Davidson spoke to several brigades about his plan to build a fleet of 500 airplanes with which to bomb the enemy works at Petersburg. And if that didn't end the war, to lay waste the major cities of the North by dropping Greek fire on them. All he needed was $20,000 to accomplish this. How did the soldiers react? Some of them thought Davidson was a humbug. Others, however, were hopeful, and they gave him money. Uh, according to the evidence, Davidson collected at least $1,000 from these average Confederate soldiers that winter. However, his one wooden prototype uh, was destroyed in a windstorm in Richmond in the spring of 65. And the evidence seems to indicate that Davidson had the concept of aerodynamic design correct because he reported that he took that uh, uh, wooden prototype and put it on a flat car and tied a rope to it so that it would be attached, tethered to the flat car, and, and, did, and you know, did the railroad at 20, 30 miles an hour. He said that that allowed the prototype to rise up from the flat car. 
So he argued that he had aerodynamic design correct. The problem, of course, was that he didn't have a power plant that was suitable for self-propelled flight. That, of course, is a problem that won't be solved for another 50 years till the combustible engine will, will be developed. Uh, so in the end, it's not by airplane that the Petersburg campaign ended. Of course, it's, over, it's the old-fashioned way, by Grant conducting attacks and mounting uh, nine offenses altogether during the course of the Petersburg campaign. Not until August of 1864 did Grant hit on a winning strategy at P Petersburg, stretch the lines westward, westward as far as possible until Lee's army is stretched to the breaking point and you can turn Lee's right flank. After several, several attempts, that was finally done by early April 1865, and on April 3rd, after uh, a series of hard battles the previous day, Petersburg fell, Richmond fell, the campaign is over. Now one final point before we go on to some questions and answers. Pete, everyone calls Petersburg a siege. I would like to point out, however, that in many ways that's a misnomer. Some of the traditional elements of siege warfare do uh, appear at Petersburg, such, such as siege approaches, mining, countermining, frontal attacks, etc. But the Federals, of course, never cut off Lee from the outside world, which is an important element of siege warfare. And they also never relied on siege approaches or blockade or starvation or mining as the primary way to get the Confederates out of Petersburg. Again, I argue that Petersburg is a campaign of maneuver and fighting, even if the maneuver slows down to, to the point where you can't even see it happening anymore. But nevertheless, in the long run, that's exactly how Grant got Lee out of Petersburg and won the campaign and, and chased him to Appomattox. Let's look at it this way. From June 1864 to April 1865, an awful lot is happening to destroy the Confederacy away from Petersburg. What has happened? Sherman has captured Atlanta in September of 64, and he's already marching most of the way to join Grant with 60,000 veterans of the Western campaigns by the time Petersburg fell. Also, most of the remaining port cities of the CF CSA have fallen into Union hands by April of 1865, strangling the Confederates in a logistical and supply sense. Wide stretches of former CS territory now occupied by federal troops and the major rebel army in the West the Army of Tennessee is a shadow of its former self. In other words, from June of 64 to April of 65, the Confederacy is withering to almost nothing, while Lee's men continue to hold the trenches at Petersburg. Grant pinned the Army of Northern Virginia to the ground at, for 11 months at Petersburg and prevented Lee from doing anything to arrest the decline of the larger Confederacy or to reverse the situation in Virginia. Uh, Grant won his campaign uh, the hard way, as I indicated before. He could not have beat Lee in the last year of the Civil War without the extensive use of sophisticated field fortifications, especially at Petersburg, but during the Overland campaign as well. And by the way, there were field fortifications were used even in the Appomattox campaign, which is a highly mobile uh, campaign that involves an awful lot of hard fighting by both troops. Well, I appreciate your, your patience and your attention. I'd be very happy to respond to any questions anybody has. Yes, sir. Um, we gave casualty figures of 42,000 for the Union, about 20,000 for the Confederate. Since the Confederates were outnumbered, why did the Union suffer so many such higher casualties? 
a big, I guess the biggest reason is that the Federals are on the offensive more than the defensive in the Petersburg campaign. Nine major Union offensives, and there were, I guess, two, maybe three uh, Confederate offenses. So, and some of these Union offenses gained nothing at all, except to add to the casualty lists. So it's, it's that, uh, and in, in some cases they're attacking fortifications, as, as with the Crater Battle of July 30th, 1864, where about 4,000 Federals are lost. Uh, a badly botched follow-up to the blowing up of a sailing in the Confederate line. And many of the other offensives at Petersburg were uh, fairly open field fighting on the flanks, that sometimes the Federals would win and then fortify the ground they won over the next several days, and sometimes they would lose and have to retreat back to their old works. So I guess that's, that's the, the, the shorthand way of, of understanding that. Yes, sir. You mentioned the use of telegraph wire. Was telegraph wire used in, in a foreshadowing the way barbed wire would, would later be used as tangles of mm -hmm. telegraph wire to impede troops from mm -hmm. attacking the first uh, works? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's an interesting point. As you probably know, barbed wire was, was still not yet invented. As I understand, it was developed in the 1870s. Uh, the Civil War appears to be the first war in, in, in Western history, in world history, to use wire as, as an entanglement to an attack. Uh, I know it was first used in a, in a famous way in the Knoxville campaign in Tennessee, East Tennessee in the fall of 1863 where, the, where the, the Union engineer had put a, um, a wire entanglement using old telegraph wire uh, in front of Fort Sanders. And it had been used in, in smaller ways earlier in the war too to trip up uh, cavalrymen on roads and et cetera like that. So it's, it basically is used in the same way that barbed wire would be, become famous in World War I. Uh, stringing it uh, uh, between stumps, as it was at the case at Fort Sanders, and at, uh, at Petersburg, it was not only putting it in front of the works, but also using it to tie together sharpened stakes or palisades or, or uh, the branches that can, that can together make up the abatis. Yeah. Uh, innovative. And the telegraph is relatively new, I guess. What is it, eight, the eight, middle of the 1840s or so? So it's not a, not a particularly old invention either in, in, in Civil War era America. Larry? Yes, Larry? I was going to ask, is there a particular stretch of the Richmond Petersburg defenses, defenses that was the least healthy? I have the impression somewhere that was, I'm not from. Uh, oh, you mean from, you mean from a sanitary? Sanitary. Somewhere I said it was, on the, it was either the north or south end of the Bermuda 100. Uh, it, it, Bermuda 100, I'm not sure. Any time the earthworks go into a low bit of ground, they're going to be more, more unhealthy than normal. And, uh, you know, north end and south end of Bermuda 100, you're getting down toward the river level, and the same on the south side of, of the Appomattox River. Any time you go down into a significant swale, what happens is that often they try to compensate for that by putting extra obstructions in that low ground so you don't have to have troops stationed on, on a permanent bases in them. Uh, the Confederates especially were very good toward the end of the, of the Petersburg campaign in, create, in damming streams to create inundations in front of the earthworks so that they would have, not have to station troops for, you know, maybe 100, 200, 300 yards of a given stretch of, of trench. Uh, the, the, in other words, two or three feet worth of water in front of that, a pond, is enough to protect that section of the line. And, and so that becomes a, a pretty easy way to deal with kind of low stretches of, of earthworks. Um, in another sense, any time the lines are very close together and forces people to stay as low as possible, 
it adds to stress, it adds to the kind of low level of immunity that everyone has toward disease and illness and that sort of stuff. That's another interesting facet of the Civil War that I, I would like to explore more. Just the stress of battle and being under fire as a way to make your immunity go so low that you get sick. Just as an aside, I'm doing some research on the Battle of Stones River, and it's amazing to me how many Confederate soldiers said, I just had a terrible cold for weeks after that battle. And it's because, you know, it's so much stress for several days. And everyone, they said, is sick for two or three weeks in the Army of Tennessee after that battle. So I, the unhealthiness not only stems from the fact that it's low ground, wet conditions, foggy, et cetera, like that, but also just, I think, the amount of stress that people are under. The best duty is in those trenches west of the Jerusalem Plank Road. It's because the lines were a mile, two miles apart from each other then. Comparatively easy. <laughs> you can rest a little bit better there. Uh, at uh, uh, at um, Colquitt Salient, where the lines are, I guess, 150 yards apart. At Elliott Salient, where the crater battle took place 125 yards apart. The heaviest duty and the worst duty you have to undergo. Yes, sir. During, during the Battle of the Crater, uh, the Union uh, man, high command didn't cooperate very well. Was that true in other aspects of the Petersburg campaign? Interesting question. A big question. Uh, what happened in, in the crater on July 30th? Much of the problem stemmed from lack of communication between commander of the Army of the Potomac, George Meade, and the guy who was in charge of that operation, Ninth Corps Commander Ambrose Burnside, uh, I, I've just published a book that came out on the Battle of the Crater, and I come down hard on Burnside primarily rather than Meade for all of this, although Meade shares some of, some of the blame for it. I, th I think Burnside did a wonderful job of managing and preparing for that attack until the last minute when he just let everything fall apart. Oh, there's a lot of stress among the high command of the Army of the Potomac during the Petersburg campaign. You can point to Five Forks, I guess, as another pretty good example of this with Governor Warren and Sheridan. Also, the first offensive in mid-June at Petersburg, the first Union attack at Petersburg, also, I think, was badly mishandled by Meade for many different reasons. Uh, he was desperate. He was launching unprepared attacks against Confederate positions that were barely known by the attacker doing so in an uncoordinated fashion out of desperation more than anything because he wanted to try to take advantage of the fact that the Federals had gotten there before most of Lee's army had gotten there. But it didn't work. I mean, you, you can't launch major offenses in a haphazard way without expecting bad things to happen as a result of them. If, if, if the point of your question is that mismanagement on the part of the Union Army contributed to the length of the campaign, the answer is absolutely yes. But then again, you know, without going too deeply into criticizing these guys, this is what happens in war. Desert Storm is a unique experience in world military history. It is not the norm. Yes, sir. How much artillery firing and mortar firing was done at night? Okay, good question. At night, it happened, not nearly as much as during the day, for the obvious reason that it's, it can be more effective if you see what you're shooting at. I know that a lot, of, a lot of artillerists at Petersburg on both sides of the fence, however, set up a system so that they could fire in the night, even though they couldn't see what they were firing at. Uh, there was a, a guy named Joseph Eggleston, I believe, a Confederate mortar commander, 
who talked about in his memoirs, you know, the, the mortar is placed on a wooden platform. So his guys identified in the daytime all the Union targets within their reach. They drew a line on that wooden platform so they knew the direction, and they wrote down numbers also on the wooden platform so they knew the range. Assuming the Federals didn't change them during the middle of the night, this way, this way they knew exactly where to fire and how to, how to hit the target any time of day or night if they had to do it. So in that sense, you can, as long as things remain stable and you do that kind of homework, you can do night firing, but it's mostly during the day. And there's an awful lot of artillery on both sides, mortars, there's some heavy mortars on the Union side, there's a lot of small mortars, cohorn mortars, all those are the small things that four men can pick up and carry along. They're very effective to lob shells at a high angle at short range onto uh, fortified positions. In the crater battle, gosh, if I remember correctly, I think it's something like 150 Union guns are involved in doing artillery prep for that and accomplish very little because the Confederates have their positions well fortified with high par and thick parapets, so it doesn't do an awful lot of good. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, you made some analogies between um, Civil War and World War I and trench warfare. Uh, without going into great detail, what were the closest uh, things between the two wars and what were the, the things that made it quite significantly different between World War I versus Civil War? I'm glad you told me not to go into great detail about it. <laughs> and then the reason is it's, it's, an, it's an interesting idea and I could go on for a long time about it. So I'll, I'll, be, I'll, I'll spare you. Uh, it's, common, it's common for people to think of Petersburg as a foreshadowing of the Western Front in World War I, and, and honestly, I, I don't think that's true. And from the simple standpoint that what you have on the Western Front in World War I is like a whale, and what you have at Petersburg is a flea. And the Western Front is anywhere from 300 to 500 miles of almost continuous earthworks. And at Petersburg, it's, you know, 127 miles if you line them up that way. The earthworks on the Western Front was not just one line of trench. The standard line was three trenches, each one several hundred yards behind each other. The Germans, of course, by the midpoint of the war, are making ten trenches, one behind the other. So in terms of depth and uh, complexity, it's, it's a completely different world. And, and the primary reason is you have armies of millions and millions and millions of men in World War I, and you don't have that in, 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 uh, at Petersburg. Um, if you want to know the comparison, the, the closest way to compare, oh, you, you have the same sort of, you have truces in World War I sometimes. I don't think they're quite as often, except for that famous Christmas truce of 1914. Um, you have trench raiding, which is very intense in World War I. A big, uh, I'm sorry, a big difference is artillery. By 1914, the artillery is miles ahead of 1864, and artillery dominates battlefields in World War I like Civil War soldiers could never have imagined. Uh, so all of these things make for a scenario in 1914 that, to, to me anyway, in my opinion, is so, so varied and so different from the Civil War that uh, I, I don't know how much you can do in terms of comparison. Yes, sir. I have, a, I have a general question. In Grant, in the Vicksburg campaign, was extremely well organized. We had very specific objectives and developed tactics to meet those objectives. The whole 
Virginia campaign from the wilderness to Appomattox since the disorganized mother. Oh my, this is a good question. If you want to stay here for three days, we can talk about it. <laughs> um, two or three things come to mind. Number one, Pemberton was not in control of the Army of Northern Virginia. Um, he contributes an awful lot to Grant's success in the Vicksburg campaign. Number two, Grant really, really whipped the bejeebers out of the Confederate Army at Champions Hill and the Big Black River. If you look at Confederate diaries and letters in Pemberton's army, they are just utterly demoralized after May 17th. And uh, the effectiveness of Pemberton's army is greatly reduced after, as a result of that. Another big reason is that you know, Grant can cut off Pemberton. He can invest, more or less invest Pemberton at Vicksburg. And that is, that is a different scenario. He, he, Grant was unable to invest Lee at Petersburg. He didn't have the troops for it. And that was, a, that was never a possibility. Um, whether, whether the Overland campaign in Petersburg is disorganized, I, I, I would disagree with that. I think there's a good deal of organization there. I just think there's an awful lot of stress and friction. Those, the, the Overland campaign was an incredibly intensive military experience for everybody involved. And it wore greatly on the Union Army and, and caused an awful lot of friction from the number one guy all the way down to the common soldier. And so I think an awful lot of what could be seen as disorganization was just the normal thing that happens when men are physically exhausted and emotionally drained and only vaguely understanding what they're supposed to do and not given adequate information about what, what they're supposed to do. You can fault Grant for something, and this is what Gordon Ray says in his magnificent series on the Overland campaign, that Grant sometimes was just too hasty in ordering major attacks too quickly with inadequate information and inadequate preparation for the troops. He had a habit of doing that. Now Grant himself said about the, his conduct of the Overland campaign after the war is a famous, I, I came across this one time, well, when I was doing work for my book on the Overland Campaign field fortifications, about 1867, Grant was at a dinner party hosted by, I think, Governor Sprague of Rhode Island, and his dinner guest asked him about this. You know, they call you a butcher for what you did in the Overland Campaign, and Grant said, look, I know what everybody says about me, but honestly, this is the only way I could have done that. And I've never been shy about losing men in order to achieve the objective that I knew had to be done. That was Grant's attitude. He had the guts to do what was dangerous and to take losses. It was tragic what happened to the Union Army in the Overland Campaign, losing half the numbers in six weeks of heavy fighting. Uh, but according to Grant, that was the only way it could have been done to defeat Lee. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. So uh, I don't know if that answered your question or gave you some food for thought or, or not, but it's, it's a, fan, a, a fantastically nice question and subject to discuss. Anything else? Dr. Hess, on behalf of Civil War Roundtable of Chicago, October 8th, 2010, we, I present this medallion on a fine presentation. We pre thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.